This is a Federal News Network podcast. As the Biden administration gets its appointees in place, EPA Administrator Michael Regan has been doing what he calls a full reset of the agency's Science Advisory Board and Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee. That means firing all 49 members, some of whom still had years left in their terms. For what this all means, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the former director of the board's staff office, Chris Zarba. So it has been very typical that the Science Advisory Board has been left out of politics. So you have changes of administrations, you have changes in which party is putting people at the head of EPA. It has always been the history to leave the Science Advisory Board alone. So it was independent of politics. There may have been some difference in priorities and emphasis, but it was always hands off and respect science and let it do what it needs to do. We had a policy in the agency that term limits for people serving on the SAB and the Clean Air Science Advisory Committee were six years. And that was a policy to keep fresh people coming in all the time, but also keeping some memory, people could serve long enough to know how the process works. I got a directive from Scott Pruitt that that directive, that six-year term limit was now going to three. So instead of an 18% turnover rate, we went to a 33%. The next thing I was told to do is that anybody that was on the board or any of the committees that had an EPA grant was to be terminated. Now, that was subsequently found to be illegal, but I had to fire quite a number of scientists. And also in recruiting new people, anybody that had a grant would be excluded. So a good chunk of some of the best qualified people were being excluded. But that issue of having an EPA grant only applied to people with EPA grants. If you had a grant from industry, you were given an exception. Then the next thing that happened was normally when replacing people on the Science Advisory Board or the Clean Air Science Advisory Committee, me and my staff would do a detailed analysis of what expertise we were losing and what was in the pipeline upcoming reviews so we could match, are we getting the right people to do the reviews and are we replacing expertise that we really needed? And when I would brief Lisa Jackson or Gina McCarthy, the two previous administrations, there was always quite a lengthy discussion about why are you picking this person? And, you know, it was their choice, but I would make recommendations to them. And both for me and my predecessors in the job, none of us can remember a single time where the administrator didn't go with all of our recommendations or at least a vast majority. Under Scott Pruitt, there was no briefing for the administrator. All they wanted was send me the list of who had submitted their name and we'll tell you who we picked. So there was nobody that we were asked to pick that I thought was unqualified. All of them were qualified people. The concern I had and had through the entire administration is that you got to get the right mix. And the analogy I frequently give is like if you're picking people to be on a football team, and if you pick only superstars, but they're all field goal kickers, you're never going to win a game. You need that diversity. So I know during my five years as director of the Science Advisory Board Staff Office, I had industry scientists on every single panel I picked. Uh, I worked with the American Petroleum Institute when we did a review of hydraulic fracturing to make sure I got the right people to represent that perspective. Widening the conversation out here a little bit, let's maybe talk a little bit more about the state of the scientific workforce at EPA. How are things doing from you know a capacity standpoint for perhaps the rank and file scientists who are working at the agency and where 
do things go from here? There's been a steady reduction in the agency's research budget. Year after year, you have less money. So as a result, the capacity of agency's research efforts has been diminishing, and quite substantially. The agency also had a grants program. I actually ran it for a while, that extramural grants. So where we didn't have the expertise in-house, we could get that expertise by issuing grants. And that's basically the the funding on that is is run out to nothing. So the grants office ceases to exist. So on, on uh, on the number one issue, I think it's just been consistent eroding. It was accelerated over the last few years where people, scientists felt frustrated. So there needs to be a rebuild. And the rebuild uh, needs to, in some cases, uh, fill in gaps that have occurred over the last decade or more. But they also need to look at what are the new priorities for the administration. I know Regan has announced uh, things on equitable community issues and global climate. And so just everything that has lost funding doesn't need to be replaced. I think the agency will need to do a fresh look at what are the priorities, what is it this country really needs, and to make sure that either you move existing workforce into those areas or hire new people that have the expertise you need to do it. Another point that we've seen, you know, as far as administration priorities, we saw somewhat recently a Biden memo outlining a couple of points here one of them being strengthening the independence of federal scientists and making sure that they ultimately have a seat at the table when it comes to producing research, producing reports that do get passed around and get up the the chain of command, so to speak, at the EPA. Can you speak to some of the effect that memo has had at the agency so far? So I think all of America over this past difficult year got a firsthand perspective on why it's important to listen to scientists. The pandemic, I think, brought that out. And that has brought attention to this issue is how do we keep politics out of science? For example, one of the things myself and a number of other former agency scientists and others have been discussing is how do we prevent it from happening? So the administrator of EPA currently makes a decision on who is the members of these boards you could turn it over to the National Academy of Sciences, or you could have independent science organizations do reviews to make sure it's not being gerrymandered. So there's a variety of things being considered. It is a bit concerning because it requires a fair amount of legal actions and changing laws, and that always takes more time. But it's good that science organizations across the government are looking at the gerrymandering of science. How do we prevent that happening? Uh, I think it's an important thing to do. I don't think it's going to be easy. It's really in America's best interest to make sure scientists have a place at the table, but they don't own the table. They just should be at the table and not kind of controlled to the point. So you got to separate the science from the policy. So picture scientists telling you what we should do to address and what the best strategies are for dealing with a pandemic. Well, then it'll be up to the politicians to decide, all right, how much of that can we accept? But when you mix those two, then you're not sure whether what you're hearing about is science or politics. So they need to stay apart. Chris Zarba, the former director of the Science Advisory Board's staff office, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? 
Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees, Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service, 
inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffles Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.